If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to uh, Leviticus 16? Put one finger in Leviticus 16, and then once you've found that, uh, find Hebrews chapter 9. They're kind of on opposite ends of your Bible. If you're using one of our red Story Church Bibles, uh, Leviticus 16 is on page 55. And Hebrews 9 is on page 583. Page 55 and 583. Uh, We're in this brief Advent series in which we're looking at the radiance of Jesus. You know, as we prepare for his arrival on Christmas Day, we're taking a look at his glory and how he shines brightly like light that Uh, It shines off of a diamond, and how when you twist a diamond even so slightly, the light shines in a new way. And last week, we looked at how Jesus is our true prophet who reveals to us the will of God, and today we're twisting his radiance a little bit, and now we're going to look at him as priest. Jesus is the true priest, and in two weeks, we'll look at how Jesus is our true king. Uh, We're looking at Jesus as priests this morning, we're looking at these two passages from Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 9. Um, And let me just preface this by saying, go home and read the entire chapters of Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 9. There's too much in there for me to talk about this morning. Um, And you'll realize when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 is really an exposition of Leviticus 16. They're so connected to each other. I just don't have enough time to read the whole passage. We're going to look at uh, verse um, 3 down to verse 10 of um, Leviticus chapter 16. Would you follow along? But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. This is Moses telling his brother Aaron what the Lord has taught Moses about how Aaron, the, the high priest, is to enter the tabernacle. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats And set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be uh, presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away 
into the wilderness of Azazel. Let's flip over now to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're looking at verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us and how in your love you provided for us a means of atonement. We thank you that your story, Old and New Testaments together, point us to the truth of what occurred on the cross of Christ where your love was put on display. We pray now, would you speak to us? Would you bring comfort to our hearts? And would you edify us in our faith? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're going to follow along and take notes, I'm using the same outline that I used last week, and I'll use it again in two weeks. Point one is, why do we need a priest? Point two is, how is Jesus the true priest? And point three is, what difference does that make for us? Why does that matter? What does that mean for us today? So first, why do we need a priest? Before I answer that, I want to ask you a different question. How do you handle conflict? How do you deal with conflict resolution, maybe at work or with your spouse or with your kids? I heard a story of a husband and wife who were uh, happily married for many, many years. Um, and the story goes like this. The husband um, said that when they were getting married, his soon-to-be wife uh, told him that there was a shoebox in her closet um, that she put up on the top shelf. My wife has a shoebox on the top shelf of her closet. Maybe you have one as well. But uh, this woman put a shoebox in the top part of her closet, and she told him, never, under any circumstances, are you to open that shoebox. And uh, at first he questioned why, and then he soon forgot about it, and for decades it was out of his mind. Well, unfortunately, they lived a long life together, and she... Uh, got ill and was on her deathbed. And as he was putting her affairs in order, he remembered the box. And so he got it down from the closet, brought it to her bedside, and said, can you finally tell me what's in here? And she said, yes. And he opened the box, and in the box there were two knitted dolls and a wad of cash. He soon realized was 
thousands of dollars, perhaps even tens of thousands of dollars. And he said, what is this? And she said, well, as we were engaged, my grandma told me some advice. She said, honey, when you and your husband get into a fight, when you get into an argument and there's conflict that can't be resolved, here's my advice. Go away into your room with some thread, some yarn, and knit a doll. It'll take your mind off of the issue. And as he heard this story, he began to well up in tears, thinking, oh my gosh, in all of our years and decades together, there have only been two times that you have felt like we had unresolved conflict. I love you. And what, what's this money? What's this for? And she said, oh, well, whenever I would knit a doll, I'd take it down to the toy store and sell it for $20. How do you deal with conflict? The priests, they were given to Israel in order to resolve conflict. Priests brought about reconciliation between God and man. You see, this is the uh, eternal truth. God and mankind are at odds with one another. Like oil and water, we don't mix well. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they realized that they were unholy and God in his perfection and holiness in the Garden of Eden said, you can no longer be with me. I must send you out. And so God in his holiness kicked out us from his presence. And in order to remember this barrier, this conflict, this tension, God established at the gate of the Garden of Eden, he put two angels, cherubim, with flaming swords that forever kept man out of God's presence. Later in the story, as God calls his people out of Egypt in the Exodus and is with them in the wilderness, he instructs them to build a tent called the tabernacle. And in this tent, God was going to dwell with his people. And at the front of the tent, at the front of the most holy place, there was a curtain. And on that curtain, the, the people were instructed to weave in a picture of one of those cherubim to remind the people always and forever that God was in his place and man was kept out. There is this gulf between God and mankind. There is this tension. There is this rebellion that we have against him. We cannot be together. Priests were God's answer to this question. How can a holy God live amongst an unholy people. Every world religion has a means by which mankind is to be reconciled to God or the gods. 
There is a mediation that occurs in every form of religion. Our Catholic neighbors regularly will go to confession where they sit in a booth and confess their sins and the priest tells them, here are the acts of penance that you must do to receive absolution. That's mediation. In uh, Islam, they have what are called the five pillars. And an obedient and submissive Muslim will spend their lives fulfilling these five pillars in order to be mediated with Allah. Even in Buddhism, that doesn't have a, a, a personal God, there is still the monastic teachings of how you and yourself can be mediated with nirvana, how you can achieve peace within yourself. Even today, non-traditional religions are ever more popular. My barber the other day, she's a, a new agey kind of person. She was telling me about the crystals that she has and how she has learned how to read people's palms and that her friends ask her to read cards for her. And I asked, well, why do you do that? She said, well, it gives me peace. It gives clarity and understanding to the situations in my life. I feel like I'm able to help my friends and family connect with the divine. Even our non-religious neighbors and friends. When you cast off the notion of any kind of divine being altogether, and all that is left is the self, there is a self-burden of mediation within ourselves. There is this reality that we all know to be true, that within ourselves we are divided, that, that we are at war or at tension or at conflict within our own bodies. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. Everyone knows it. The, the Christian worldview of that reality is this, we were all made in the image of God. There is some part of our lives, whether you are a Christian or not, that reflects God's glory and goodness. And at the same time, there is something within us that wars against that. We are at tension and conflict with ourselves, which is really a manifestation of the conflict that we have with God. Alan Noble, who wrote the book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhumane World, he says this about this tension, this reality that exists in this world, that this world created by God uh, exists also this part of the world that's fighting against God's designed reality. He rightly says that this tension manifests itself in anxiety and in worry even in depression or a sense of purposelessness, this overbearing weight of pressure. He's a college professor of, of English, and he says that every year he interacts with students who express this feeling of needing to find uh, the, 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 the right major to study in, or then uh, this pressure of doing well in school, the fear of landing a good internship, the impending doom of graduating and finding a career. 
This is pressure and tension that they feel within themselves, from their parents, from their friends, from their community. And, and Alan Noble says this, that when we're faced with this tension, this conflict, however it manifests itself, in those moments, we try to overcome that tension by what he calls self-medication. He isn't necessarily talking about prescription or medicinal medications. Rather, he's talking about ways in which our society gives us in order to get through the pain that is caused by the tension. He gives a personal example. He says he was doing taxes one night, and we all know how stressful taxes can be. And he was getting so fed up with it with himself that he found himself kind of unwillingly or involuntarily walking to his fridge and grabbing out ice cream to cope with the feelings that he felt. This rupture of relationship between ourselves and our creator God brings about pain, and our world says, here's how you cope with that pain. Whether it's food and drink, entertainment, doom scrolling, TikTok and reels, to one degree or another, each of us in this room, if we were being honest with ourselves, has one or two or three or maybe a dozen mechanisms throughout the day that we use to self-medicate. Or perhaps I should say in the context of our sermon, self-mediate. We try to overcome the barrier that exists between our experience of the world and God. So why do we need a priest? Because deep down, every one of us, every one of our neighbors knows this to be true. There is a gulf between us and God. There is a distance between who we are and who we were made to be. There's a difference between what we do and what we were called to do. There exists a tension here. There is conflict between God and us. How do you handle conflict? That's why we need a priest. A priest can reconcile us to God. Priests accomplish this through a process called atonement. That's what Leviticus 16 is all about. Leviticus 16 outlines the instructions, the ritual uh, that Aaron and the high priest were to do once a year on a day called the Day of Atonement. In this annual event, the people of God would gather before the tent, the tabernacle, and the high priest would make atonement for their sins. In, in, in Scripture's language, this tension, this distance, this gulf is described in two ways. The first is, yes, you have transgressed the law. You have done things in which you are outside of God's commands. You have a debt held against you. You are in sin, and your debt needs to be paid. The other way the scriptures talk about our standing before God is not just that you have a debt that needs to be paid because of your sin, but you are spiritually unclean because of your sin. That your sin has caused you to be unclean 
clean. And you stand now before a pure and holy God, unacceptable. But on the day of atonement, when Aaron would go before the presence of God, he would solve both of these problems. I'm going to tell you in summary fashion how Aaron did this. I I don't have time to go through every part of Leviticus 16, but there are four things I think you need to know about this. First, God was in the holy place, behind the veil in the tent. And, And no one was allowed back there. His purity and his holiness, they would consume anyone that saw it. And yet on the Day of Atonement, Aaron is invited to go through the veil. The first thing Aaron had to do, though, he had to make purification for himself and for his household and for the instruments and the the, the furniture in the tent because Aaron himself was a sinner. So the first thing that Aaron had to do was actually take blood and purify and make atonement over himself and his household and the tent itself. The third thing that Aaron had to do after getting into the holy place and then making atonement for himself, he went back out of the tent and he took these two goats that the people of Israel put forward. And Aaron cast lots over these two goats. And over one goat that was designated for, as our Bible translates, Azazel, which is a transliteration of a Hebrew word of those characters, Most commentaries believe that that word means, literally, the scapegoat. Aaron would pray with his hands on the head of this scapegoat, imputing onto the goat the debt and the sin of the people, and then they would cast out that goat, sending it away from the camp, away from their lives, into the wilderness to die. So that the debt of their sin was lifted. But then the second goat that was dedicated to the Lord, they would kill. And they would take the blood of that goat and Aaron would go back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood, and thus wash Israel clean. Those four things happened. Aaron went into the presence of God, made atonement for himself, cast the sin of God's people away, and then washed God's people clean of their sin. That's what a priest did. That's why they needed a priest. But was that enough? Was that enough? No. Aaron and all the other priests after Aaron, they were still sinful. They would need purification for themselves again and again and again in order to continue their duties. The people were still sinful. Year after year after year, they would have to come again and again to this event. Their consciences over and over and over again would remind them of their guilt and of their shame and how impure they were. They would repeatedly have to offer sacrifices Ultimately, we know that this wasn't enough. Hebrews chapter 10 
Verse 4 says that it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Although the priests were appointed by God, it wasn't enough. They were always looking for something more. They were looking for someone more, someone more capable. So how is Jesus the true priest? I realize point one went long, so I'm going to point two and three are short. How is Jesus the true priest? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter nine. And in this chapter, the author shows us Jesus is better than Aaron. Aaron came into the holy of holies Jesus himself goes into the heavenly presence of God, into the tent that was not made by hands. Jesus, as our true priest, does something that Aaron could never do. He actually goes into the very presence of God in heaven. In the life of Jesus and his teachings, you'll frequently see Jesus interacting with the the religious leaders of the day. And there was one such interaction in which uh, they were accusing Jesus of having disregard for the temple. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. Now in the context, he's clearly talking about his own body being the temple, but in a broader way, he is beginning to show that the physical temple is but a shadow of the real thing. In in John chapter 4, he talks to the woman at the well and, and, and eventually says to her, there's coming a day in which you don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship me. Because the physical temple is but a shadow of the reality. Jesus has entered the real thing into the very presence of God in heaven. But second, Hebrews 9 tells us that not only has Jesus gone into the real presence of God in heaven, Jesus goes as a perfect high priest who does not need to atone for himself. He himself is a pure, spotless, sinless priest. He doesn't have to make atonement for himself. I'm always captivated by the stories and the life of Jesus when he is interacting with Uh, individuals who are ceremonially unclean. Think of his interactions with the lepers who were socially cast aside because any interaction with them would make you unclean and unable to go to the temple and worship. And yet when Jesus goes to the lepers, he has no fear in interacting with them. In fact, when he touches them, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what happens? The cleanliness of Jesus flows through him into them. Jesus is a far greater high priest who has no need to atone for his own sin. He didn't have sin. He's the source of cleanliness and purity and holiness. Third, Jesus goes into the heavenly place where God is. He doesn't have to atone for himself. But when he offers a sacrifice for the people of God, he offers himself. He offers himself as a perfect, spotless sacrifice. 
as Jesus is beginning his ministry. John the Baptist in front of the crowd says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later in Jesus' ministry, he'll say, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not only the true priest, he is the true sacrifice who gives himself as a spotless lamb for the people. And finally, he is greater because he has done this once for all time. He has done this once for all time. One of the first major questions that I had about the faith that I I didn't quite find a good answer to for a while, maybe you've asked this question yourself. How were people in the Old Testament saved? How were people in the Old Testament saved? We just read that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And yet the whole book of Leviticus is instructions on how to use blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How were people in the Old Testament saved? By trusting in God's provision for atonement, God accepted their faithfulness to him because of Christ. Think of it like this. When you write a check and give it to someone and they take it, they are accepting your payment before you go to the bank and cash it, right? So you take the check and you consider their debt is paid. All you have is a piece of paper. Now at some other time, you go to the bank and you cash it in and look, there's money there for you. When the people of God trusted in the Lord's provision and trusted in in his system, they were writing a check. And God, in his divine knowledge and plan, accepted that payment and then on the cross cashed it in. They didn't do it for themselves. They didn't have the merit or the money themselves. But he accepted it on the basis of Christ. How is Jesus the true priest? He goes into the heavenly of heavenlies. He doesn't have to atone for himself. He makes atonement for the people, not by some animal, but by his own blood. And he has done this once and for all. What does this mean for us? Hebrews 9 tells us two reasons why this is important for us today. First, This priest and sacrifice, it purifies us from dead works. Or to put it another way, it unburdens us from self-medication. Our attempts to self-medicate, to self-mediate, our attempts to cope with the tension inside of us, to attempt to bring some kind of mediation and reconciliation ourselves that burden is lifted from us. How? In the Old Testament, it was the guilty sinner 
who had to bring again and again their own sacrifice, an animal from their own herd, something that they had worked to keep alive, something that they had spent their money on to obtain, something that they had to produce out of themselves. But with Jesus, our true priest, our great sacrifice, we have received that gift given by God's own grace. We don't come up with it ourselves. God himself will provide the sacrifice. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not up to us to come up with the sacrifice. Indeed, there's nothing more for us to do. The payment has been paid. It's been accepted. We are relieved of the burden of dead works, of self-medication. There's nothing more for us to do but to believe in the finished work of Christ, our great high priest, on our behalf. Second, not only are we purified from our dead works, but we're purified in our conscience. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever thought to yourself, that's it. I've done it. I've crossed the line of no return. There's no making up for what I just did. Have you ever had the thought that there are just so many sins in your life? Maybe I haven't even repented of all of them. How do I know that I'm saved? Have you ever thought to yourself, I know that I've messed up, but I'm, I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm, I'm going to read my, my Bible. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to help someone else, and hopefully that will clear my conscience. Friends, take heart. Stop trying to make up for what you have done. Stop trying to make atonement for yourself. It's done. It's over. Atonement has been made for every one of your sins, the ones you know about and the ones you don't know about. Every one of them. The payment has been accepted. You've been washed clean sprinkled by his blood. No more guilt, no more shame. It's been covered by another. You have been made pure. You have been made acceptable to God. Jesus, our great high priest, has really and truly brought to you the favor of God. You are reconciled to him forever. That can't be taken away from you. Rest in that truth. Every week we say a prayer of confession and I pronounce pardon. I'm not doing something new every week. I am reminding you of something old that has already taken place. It is already done and finished. 2,000 years ago, Jesus ransomed you. Jesus purified you. It is done. It is finished. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, everything has been wiped clean. Rest in that truth. When your conscience brings up your sin, when you feel the weight of your guilt, when you feel the grime of your shame, preach this message to yourself. Jesus Christ, my great high priest, has offered himself for me. By his death, I am forgiven. By his blood, I am made clean. Although I do not deserve it, 
although I cannot earn it, although I am still a sinner, I still rebel, the blood of Jesus covers me. Rest in that truth. How do we know that that's true? When Jesus died on the cross, as he was crying out his final words, he said, it is finished. And the gospel of Matthew tells us that in that moment, the curtain of the temple, the one that had embroidered into it the angels that reminded God's people day in and day out that there is a gulf between you and him, it was torn from top to bottom, reminding us today, Jesus has reconciled you to God. Friends, Jesus, our great high priest, has made a way for you to be with God. He has offered himself as your sacrifice. By his blood, you are made pure. By his death, your debt has been paid. The curtain has been torn. The conflict has been resolved. May the peace of the Lord be with you now and forevermore. Let's pray.